I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome along to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine where we take a look through an author's working day. This week we're chatting to Danya Kukavka. Her newest novel is Notes on an Execution. It tells a serial killer's story from the perspective of the women that he knows. We chat about how she plays with the nuggets of a story while she's writing. Also how important her process journal is and why the pressure of the big second book made her write furiously. I actually don't think it was about the content so much as it was about the pressure of writing a second book. You know, you wrote your debut, it's out, everyone's like, what are you doing next? And you're not sure if the first one was a fluke. You know, you're not sure if you can do it again. And now that I'm at my third, I'm like, okay, I can definitely do it again. It's just going to take the time that it's going to take. There's more with Danya Kakavka in this week's Writer's Routine. Hello, welcome to Writer's Routine. My name's Dan Simpson. Thank you so much for listening. We take a look through an author's working day. The idea is simple. We try and steal some of their tips and tricks, how they get stuff done to help us and give us the best chance of getting that idea from our heads down onto the page. And this week's episode is brought to you by a software which helps you do that. It's called Plotter. I'm very excited that for a little while, Plotter are helping to power this show just like they can power your writing. Plotter is a tool that does what the title says. Nice and simple. Plotter plots. It helps you plan your books the way that you think. It lets you outline faster, organize smarter and generally turbocharge your productivity. If you're a visual writer, this is perfect because when you open it up, you get a digital cork board where you can easily swap between the timeline, the outline, your notes, the details on characters and places. You can even tag them all. Colour code them too, so you can easily switch between what you need, where you want to put it. It makes everything so simple. It allows you to track all of the details of your plot at a scene level and switch, swap and use them however you want. It's a fantastic tool for doing the back end of your writing. So all you need to do is focus on what's on the page. And here's what I really love about it. If you're having trouble with that plot on the page... You've got an idea, but you're struggling to just figure it out into a, a plot and a storyline that, that you can work with, that maybe you know, just something to guide you along the way. Plotter has more than 30 proven plot templates to kickstart your story planning from some of the best writers around. Hollywood screenwriters, fantastic authors, they are all there. And we've spoken on this show 
about a few different writing softwares that can help you and the best part is this works with all of them you can import and export from word and scrivener plotter helps you spend more time writing and less time worrying about everything else it helps you strip back to what is important now the best way for you to see what it does and how stunning it looks how helpful it can be is by getting to go.plotter.com slash routine and taking a look around. While you're there, you can get 10% off the software with this show, which means that for $22.50 under £20, you get access to this software forever to help you plan, plot your story, to make you organise smarter and outline faster. Take a look around and you can save yourself 10%. There's no E in plotter. So it's go.plotter.com, P-L-O-T-T-R, go.plotter.com slash routine. Now, this week on the podcast, we're chatting to Danya Kukavka. If you've been in a bookshop in the UK, perhaps over the world, but I've not been, so I don't know, you will have seen her newest novel, Notes on an Execution, front and centre. It's in the windows, it's on the recommended shelves, it's everywhere. It's all about Ansel Packer, who is scheduled to die in 12 hours. He knows what he's done and now awaits his execution. The same chilling fate that he forced on girls years ago. But Ansel doesn't want to die. He wants to be celebrated, understood, and through the women in his life, a mother, a sister, a homicide detective, we learn the story of Ansel's life. Now, Daniel's debut, Girl in the Snow, was released in 2017, and that was big as well. It was a national bestseller, translated in many languages, and she felt the pressure... That pressure that comes with following up something hugely successful. And we talk about it, how she handled the pressure of writing the second by very simply writing more and more, surrounding herself with her work and maybe how that was quite unhealthy for her. So she's now recalibrated her writer's routine. She explains why she's moved past it. Now, her writer's routine has changed between books. We find out why. We talk about why what she knew when she was writing wasn't much about the plot, mostly about the feeling of the story rather than where it was ending up. And we run through why what she thinks will happen at the start, what little she thinks will happen at the start, actually very rarely comes true. There's a lot in this, some really good tips and tricks for you to take away. Let's get into it with Danya Kukavka and what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. So I am in my home office. Um, I have a big window that sort of faces my neighbor's house, but I can see a little bit of the rolling Seattle hills. Um, I get a lot of good light in here. I have some plants. Um, When I write, I always keep my process journal next to me, which we can talk about. Um, And then I have a candle going usually, which I have right now. I have my knitting in my lap, which is fun fact. When I write, I'm usually also knitting. Um, And then my little dog right here too. Um, His name is Remy. He's very sweet. I talk to him a lot about writing. So let's run through a few of those things. First, the knitting. Mm -hmm. I'm (laughs) I'm sure there's not a prescribed process as to how and when you knit but uh, when when did that start so you're two published books in um when did you start (laughs) kind of knitting to take your mind off what you're working how does it work yeah so I started knitting at the beginning of the pandemic well just slightly before the pandemic I took a class and I got so into it that I actually um worked at my local yarn shop during the pandemic for like socialization purposes it was amazing um I since have had to leave thanks to this book and all the excitement and I've been too busy um but I got so into knitting and now I usually have about three knitting projects going at once I have one that's like super easy that I can do without looking 
um, and one that's sort of medium and one that's really challenging for me. So I always pull out my super easy one while I'm writing and I have it always in my lap. And you know, those moments when you're writing and you're sort of staring out into space and you don't know what to write next. Those are the moments where I just pick it up and just my hands are going. I'm not really looking at it. I'm still staring into space, but it does feel good to have sort of a distracting motion. Uh, if you were to analyze it, how is it helping you? Do you think? Um, I think it's, it's really helping me by, um, keeping my hands busy, keeping my mind off of the stress of not knowing what to write. Right. Like I think, um, one of the most stressful things about writing is just the sitting there and it really, really helps with the sitting there for sure. And the process journal, what's that filled with? Um, the process journal, I, this is like such a neurotic thing. Um, it is, so I keep like a really, really strict uh, process journal in which I don't write anything else. It's only a notebook for my book and the current novel project I'm working on. Um, and it's a moleskin, black moleskin, no lines, black Sharpie, fine tip. Um, <laughs> and every day I sit down and I record basically what happened that day in my writing process. So I'll write the date, I'll write the number of hours I worked. I usually tally my hours, which I find really fun and satisfying, especially when, you know, writing is such a nonlinear process. Um, and it, uh, it feels really good to be able to look at the work you've done and just say like, oh, even though I didn't write pages, I deleted pages or I revised pages or, you know, my word count's not going up. I did put in these hours. I did put in these days, right? So um, for notes on an execution, and we can talk about this more, I logged, I think, 1,800 like solid butt in chair writing hours, you know, not including conversations, not including research, not including phone calls, um, just hours that I was sitting in the chair. So I record all of those. <laughs> uh, it's interesting how strict you are with yourself in doing that. I've interviewed a, lo a lot of writers and a lot of them, while yeah, having to be serious because they're publishing countless books, they, they're, they're quite easygoing with letting, letting things happen to them. Why are you quite focused and methodical in charting this so you can look back? Yeah, nothing about me is easygoing whatsoever. I'm like, I'm like, you know, pretty extroverted for a writer, but I think that also comes with having like a really serious method to it. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty serious about charting. So I wrote my first book, Girl in Snow, without charting anything at all. And I did feel the whole time like I had kind of no idea what was going on. And like I was just like floating in this big ocean of, of the book and trying to figure it out as I was swimming and eventually might reach a shore. Right. And I think as I learned how to chart my process, it really felt like mapping it in some ways and knowing where you are, being able to at the very least look behind you if you can't look ahead. Um, so in the process journal, I also map the hours, but I, every day that I sit down, I say sort of what's working that day, what's not working that day, um, what scenes I wrote. And then most importantly, I write what comes up next so that when I sit down the next day, I have like a really clear sense of what I need to do. Uh, have you, so you publish notes on an execution. As I say, I walk around London and I can't move for seeing it in shop windows. <laughs> which, which is I really love to hear that. Yeah, it's great. It's what you want to hear. Mm -hmm. um, move, moving on to the third or fourth book, whatever you're working on now, how helpful is looking back on the process journal that you know what worked for you, what didn't work for you, how much are you tweaking future writing based on what the, the journal that you've kept? 
You know, it's funny. I never look back actually at projects that I'm not working on anymore. I'll look back often at, so I'm working on my third book right now and it's slow going, but it's, it's going, I worked on it this morning. Um, and I, I look back at, you know, notes I made myself earlier in this book, but I never look back at my, my notebooks from notes on an execution. Um, and I think I learned during that process, first of all, the writing of notes on an execution was extremely intense and I don't plan to recreate that process. That was a very specific point in my life where I had left my day job, um, was writing full-time, had moved to Seattle where I didn't really know anybody and found just like writing full-time was extremely painful. It was like, you know, just really uh, secluded. It was dark. It was winter here. And I didn't really have a way forward in the story. So I just sort of sat myself there and punched myself in the face every day, which I don't plan to do <laughs> going forward. Um, so I've taken a much more lax approach to this book just in terms of my schedule and the number of hours I have to put in every day, which is much fewer than for notes on an execution. And, you know, I'm okay with the fact that it will take longer. Talking about the move to Seattle. Now, uh, I, I, I don't know why you did it. It might be some deep personal reason and you're more than welcome to not answer. But like, b- uh, you were living in New York before, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Brits, Brits never do that. Like, Brit, like Brits would never, ever, ever move an entire, li- a literal, an entire continent away. Whereas I feel like I speak to Americans uh, generalizing you all, I apologize for that. I feel like I speak to uh, many more American people who will happily kind of live in New York one year, then go out to Denver another year, then go back to Tampa for a third. <laughs> like, it seems a lot more... Like, what's going on? What, what, why, why is that a thing? Yeah, well, for me, it was much more... I don't, I don't plan to be moving all the time. I've been in Seattle for about five years now, and it looks like I'll be staying a while. Um, but for me, I had always wanted to live in New York City. I went to NYU. I worked in publishing there after school. I wrote my first book there. I had such a... I loved Brooklyn, loved Brooklyn. But it was absolutely exhausting. And my partner and I, um, we had both been so run down by the commute to our full-time day jobs, desk jobs. Um, and you know, the New York subway, like a commute could take 40 minutes on a good day and an hour and a half on a bad day. And you just never know which one it was going to be. Um, and that I think was really, really stressful. You know, the traffic, the, the, the fifth floor walk up, you know, all of that sort of compounded. And we were 25 at the time and we'd been in New York for seven years. And my partner got into law school in Seattle and we said, okay, perfect. We're going to go and we're going to see what it's like. Um, so that was how we ended up out here. And he got into law school. I came out and sort of said, this is my start as a writer. Um, and it was in some ways, but in other ways, also, I found other paths that made me just as happy, which I, we can talk about too. I, I also work as a literary agent, which is a whole other side of my career. Uh, it's it's interesting that you wrote uh, Girl in Snow while you were in New York, and then you came in and you and you, as you said, you wrote notes on an execution in, in quite an intense mode because you were just moved. But being in Seattle, I, I know it's I know it's still like a pretty busy place, but it's not New York. Have you found that? taking life slightly slower, maybe being in a slightly more open space has, has, has helped the way your brain works, has given you the space and the time to write a bit more freely? 
Yes and no. I miss New York a lot. I like New York is the home of my heart. Um, and, you know, I'm kind of my partner's job now is keeping us here right now. Um, and I do miss the energy of New York. I miss being in the place where everything happens or, or at least feeling like that. But there is some relief and also not having to be in the place where everything happens. Right. And Seattle is a physically very beautiful city, um, especially at certain times of year that are not right now. <laughs> so I think if you catch me in the summer, I'll have different words to say about Seattle than I do in the winter. <laughs> okay well let me plonk you back in your writing room then uh you mentioned what kind of what's going on around you you've got the dog you've got the process journal uh is, is there anything else practical around you so maybe post-it notes with plot points maybe whiteboards or things that are helping keep you in check with what you're writing you know all of that goes into my process journal um so you know if i do need post-it notes with plot points i'll sort of make a section in my process journal of that so it really all is contained in this one space which i love because i'm like i mentioned really organized and kind of neurotic about it um so that makes me very happy and i also have um a daily planner for my my agenting work and you know my workout classes I'm signed up for and dates with friends and things like that. Like my actual calendar sits on my desk. And then I also have a notepad that says, fuck it at the top. And that's just for like, if I get emails while I'm trying to write that I need to answer later, I just jot them down so that I don't have to move away from my writing. That's sort of my, like my, my tend to after my writing session notepad. Maybe I'll start by running you through what it looked like for notes on an execution and then running you through what it, the changes have started to look like now. Okay, great. So um, when I was writing notes on an execution, I lived in this super creaky old house right on the water um, in Seattle near the university. And if the bathroom, I cannot describe this bathroom to you. It was like the worst place on the planet, absolutely falling apart. I'm very happy to have moved out of there, though it had this amazing view of the water in the mountains. Um, and it had these two balconies. One of them was covered, a covered deck, and one of them was uncovered. Um, so I could sort of sit out there when it was raining too, which was really nice. So when I first started, first moved out to Seattle and was really, really writing notes on an execution, I would wake up in the morning a little bit panicked um, to be like, oh my God, I have to write a book today. And I would make my tea and I would sit at my desk and I would do probably an hour and a half of writing. So like really reading what I wrote yesterday, plunking out a scene or two, and then I would eat breakfast, um, read a little bit of a novel that I wanted to read for fun, and then do another hour and a half or two hours of writing. And that for me was absolutely exhausting. It was way too much writing. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of people can sustain that on a daily level. It was really painful for me. I felt like I was just pulling teeth to sit there for that long. Um, and then I would usually go for a run or like to yoga class or something. And then in the afternoon, I would do like business stuff, you know, like talk to my editor or send my emails or do my taxes or whatever it was. Right. Um, and that was pretty much the process for notes on an execution for about two years. Um, during that time, I started uh, reading for a literary agent who's now my colleague, Michelle. And I sort of start, picked up hourly client reading work. And I kind of, I missed working in publishing. I really missed being involved in other people's books. Um, and that sort of opened up like this beautiful social option for me in a way that it was connected to my writing. It was connected to sort of the muscles I use for work, but it was also much more open to the world. Um, and I found that I really loved it. So how my process has changed since that time is actually really quite drastic. You know, um, I have quite a few clients under my literary agency umbrella right now. Um, and I'm 
I'm actively selling books for my clients. Um, so that includes things like taking meetings with editors um, and pitching books and sending a, a whole bunch of emails and doing contracts and foreign rights and film and TV rights. So there's just a lot more going on now. And I frankly, I really like it that way. I prefer it that way. So now my writing routine really looks like in the morning I wake up. Oh, and I got, got my dog. Um, sort of as notes on an execution with wrapping up, um, which has been such a great addition to my writing life. He's just always here hanging out. He's taking a nap right now on my futon right next to me. Um, so now I wake up, I walk my dog, I make my breakfast. I sort of triage my agency inbox. Anything that needs to be urgently answered is urgently answered. The rest goes on to that fuck it list where I figure it out later. Um, and then usually around 9 a.m., I will sort of turn everything off light my candle, put away my calendar, open my process journal, and time myself for an hour to work on my book. Um, and because I'm not, you know, busting through it every single day for like four hours or whatever, five hours, it feels much more uh, organic, almost like a meditation, or almost like, um, I don't want to say prayer, I'm not a religious person, but I do kind of feel like it's an act of self-care in some ways, rather than an act of, this is the thing you must do because it's your job. And I much prefer that. Um, so you've got an hour and a half done. Is that mm -hmm. done? Are you done with writing for the day? Mm -hmm. And usually if I can do that most days of the week, I'm, I'm plowing through my drafts. I mean, that's, it's, I'm still in the early phases, so it's, I'm producing new work. So it's about a thousand words a day um, is what I'm doing in the hour and a half. And then every now and then I'll work, um, on like a Monday night with a glass of wine. And I find that those moments are much freer probably because of the wine. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I actually just booked because I've been so busy with agenting and personal life things recently. I haven't had time to do my hour every day. So, and I felt really like I've missed it. So I just booked a writing weekend, um, on the North coast in Seattle, about an hour away and bringing my dog. I'm going by myself for Friday through Saturday. And I've done this once before recently um and i got about i think like 13 hours of writing done in one weekend so it's kind of just a sprint when your hour and a half is done that day unless it's a monday when you're writing with wine uh, uh, how good are you at completely parking any story ideas are, are you does it keep ticking over do you always feel like you want to get back to writing if you had the space or are you perfectly fine with switching that mode off and getting back to other jobs I'm usually quite ready to be done by that point. <laughs> you know, I've gotten into it. I've had my gotten into the vibe kind of and written the amount that I felt that I needed to write usually by that point. Um, and then I sort of let it wind down while I journal at the end of the session. Um, so that's sort of where I read a quote recently. Somebody told me, I can't even remember who said this. I feel like it was like Elizabeth Stroud or something like that said, you know, you should always take 15 minutes after you write to let the idea settle um, because like your brain is so in the story and good things come in those 15 minutes, things you need um, to settle your brain. And I've not been taking 15, but I have been really sitting after I finished the physical act of writing and thinking into my process journal. You mentioned it's quite a drastic change from how you wrote notes on an execution. How considered was that? You said that you don't look back over your process journal, but how considered was the thought that, okay, I was, I was, you know, way, I was stretching myself at the, the writing there was far too intense. I can't manage uh, mentally four hours of concentrated writing in this story all about a serial killer, for Christ's sake. Uh, how, 
how much was that you sitting there and thinking, I can do an hour and a half that that gives me the rest of my life back almost? That was exactly the thought. Um, and I think, you know, for that four hours being too intense, I actually don't think it was about the content so much as it was about the pressure of writing a second book. You know, you wrote your debut, it's out. Everyone's like, what are you doing next? And you're not sure if the first one was a fluke. You know, you're not sure if you can do it again. And now that I'm at my third, I'm like, okay, I can definitely do it again. It's just going to take the time that it's going to take. I need to also be feeling good about it. I need to feel good about the story. I need to feel good about my work. I need to feel like I'm sort of releasing into it in some ways rather than forcing it. Um, And that's what I've really taken from the notes process. What happens in the future though? So uh, your debut Girl in the Snow was very successful. It looks like Notes on an Execution will have that equal success. I mean, I, I mentioned I can't move for it in bookshops. It's in development for a TV show. You've got this... It's not a dual life because you're working completely in publishing. But, you know, I've spoken to many authors who are swamped by so much that goes on, they can't possibly have time for anything else apart from the writing and the dealing with it. And I'm sure you as a publisher, you know this, well, as a literary agent, you know this more than anyone else. What happens in the future? Are are you faced up to the prospect that there will come a time where you might have to dedicate every waking hour to writing and your books? Um, you know, I kind of, when I started living this lifestyle, I kind of looked at it and was like, could I do this forever? And the answer was, yeah, totally. I think I can produce my books, um, and keep working as an agent in the long term. I think the balance has really worked for me. You know, I'm never going to have a list of 60 clients, like some of my colleagues. I'm never going to be selling huge books every week. You know, that's, I have to sort of really limit what I take on as an agent, but that's, what's beautiful about being an agent rather than an editor or publisher is, you know, you really can decide you, you know, um, what do they say? You eat what you kill when you're an agent. So I can decide to take on no clients for some time. I can decide to, you know, take a week off where I need because I'm, agents make their money on commission, not salary. I'm not an employee, you know? Um, So that kind of thing is really important, the flexibility of agenting. And I do think also there are fallow periods for agenting just naturally. So for example, the month of August in publishing, I don't know if it's the same in the UK, but in America, it's just completely shut down. Absolutely nothing is happening. It's like, it's like summer for teachers, you know? Um, so that month I've got time to write. I had actually a lot of time to write in December because everyone was so crazed with holidays that we weren't submitting books because um, editors didn't want to read them then. Um, so, you know, I would catch up on my agenting paperwork and read some submissions. But aside from that, I wasn't, co- the, co- the email co- constancy was not there like it is for the rest of the year. So there are these sort of natural periods where I think there was one week in late August, early September where I was writing five hours a day for just the one week because I really wanted to finish this draft. And he did. And it was great. I was speaking to an author yesterday, uh, uh, an author, uh, another American called Greg Hurwitz, who writes like thrillers, you know, like Bond-like thrillers. He was talking all about kind of cues to let you to let your brain know that this is writing time and, and like almost rituals that he does. And you mentioned earlier uh, when you've done your morning, when you've answered a few emails, when you've walked the dog, when you've dealt with a bit of the fuck it list, you sit down and you get your tea and you write the candle. How important are those? Very. Uh, do, but do you think you could work without them? I can. I have when I'm traveling, you know, um, you don't always have your perfect little office set up and that's fine. Um, you know, I'll, if I'm traveling and I want to write, I'll go to a cafe and I don't have any of those things, but 
I always have the process journal. That's the most important thing. If I'm traveling and I know I want to write, I'll bring it with me. Um, but yeah, the candle makes a difference. Um, that means when the candle is lit, that's t- it's time to write my knitting projects. Like I have um, like a little blanket on my desk chair that I've knitted entirely while writing. Um, so like even kind of the, the project I'm working on is kind of superstitious for it, right? So like, I'm like, this is my writing project, my writing knitting. <laughs> if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery think again juvederm volux xc is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime even better this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment no maintenance required improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with juvederm volux xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We'll be back with more from Dania in just a sec. You can get a discount 10% off the fantastic writing software Plotter by heading to go.plotter.com forward slash routine. There is another brilliant way that you can support the show by becoming a backer at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. It's one of the easiest ways that you can help us carry on bringing you these chats with some of the best authors, and we're living up to that today, the best authors around as often as we can. I know times are tight, uh, so anything that you can pledge goes an extraordinarily long way. I really appreciate it. For a couple of dollars a month, you get our unending thanks, you get bonus episodes, there is merch, there is even a way for your book to sponsor this show. If you've released something recently, you don't think it's had the plugging or the marketing that it deserves. I know that can sometimes happen. Let me do it for you. Let me plug away for your book on this show. By backing us over at Patreon, you help us carry on. If you've learned anything in over 250 episodes, maybe there's just a little tiny something that you can give back. Whatever it is, it goes an extraordinarily long way. To make that happen, get to patreon.com forward slash writers routine.
Let's get back to it then with Danya Kakavka chatting about her new novel, the phenomenally successful Notes on an Execution. In this part, we talk more about the idea for the story and when she knows where it's heading. Also, why she starts the novel with an understanding of the feeling of the plot, not so much about what will actually happen. And we pick things up talking about the pressure of writing it, writing that second novel after a successful debut. We've spoken about the pressure that she felt. When did it start to ease for her? I think when I sold the book. So I wrote the whole book on spec. I was not under contract. Um, And I think the whole time of working on it, I was just like, I don't know if anybody's going to want this. I don't know if anybody's going to buy this. I don't know if anyone wants to read it. And that was pretty paralyzing in a lot of ways. Um, And then when it came time to submit it and we actually got a deal for it, I just took the hugest breath of relief. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it really, I wrote the entire thing thinking this could come to absolutely nothing. And that's, you have to, I mean, you, you have to write it anyway. You got no choice. (laughs) And then moving through your third book and hopefully future books, what, how much of that same pressure did you feel writing the third book? Is it the perennial curse of an author to feel that it, it might not be as good as the last one? Yes. Oh, definitely. I mean, as I'm writing this draft, I'm like, this is such crap. This is nowhere near as good as my last one, you know, but I have to trust that it will be eventually. And that's what I learned from Notes and an Execution was that all that doubt, all that harrowing panic, all of it, um, you just have to trust that if you keep going, you'll create something. And I think that is just the ultimate truth of writing. That is, if you keep writing, you will create something. And if you keep working on it, it will be better. Um, and I think for this, I'm really trying to sit in that trust and in the process of it and of saying, you know, just because it's not a full book right now, that's fine. It's not supposed to be. I'm not at that phase of the process yet. When you're working as an agent and you worked as an editor, uh, you, you must be learning all the time about writing, continuously learning. How, how like conscious is that thought? Are you, how much do you sit there reading books that you're sent manuscripts or, uh, when you're editing thinking, Oh, I might not have done it like that. Maybe, oh, they've done it like that. That's interesting. Is it, how conscious is that? Or is a lot of it almost by osmosis you absorb as you work? I think it's a little bit of both. You know, I am a really, really editorial literary agent. A lot of people don't put as much work onto the page as I do with my clients before I send the books out. Um, And that I think comes from my writer self saying, hmm, this would work better this way. Why don't you try that? Um, And I think that is where my strength as an agent lies actually is, you know, less in the strategizing and more on the page. Um, and that, that is where my writing background really comes in because I often have clients where I'm like, well, what if you added this or what if you did that? Not necessarily because it's what I, what I would do because I can only write the books that I can write and they can only write the books that they can write. But as a reader and as someone who has experience with craft, it's, I think it's easier for me to see it than it might be otherwise. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's amazing. Uh, just the like the hour and a half of work that you do every day. Um, that's not like it's not the longest amount of any author that I've spoken to. No, no, it's quite small <laughs> because it is quite condensed. Because you've got this allotted time, bang every day. How tough does it ever get? Or because it is quite tight, because you know that you're not going to be sat there for four hours on end. Do the words come out quite easily? 
Yeah, I think having a time constraint is actually really helpful for me. Otherwise, I'll sit there and noodle and waffle and panic. Um, and I think it's really nice to be like, girl, you got half an hour left. You got to start writing that scene. You know what I mean? <laughs> You've got a meeting at 11. You have to start writing that scene now. Um, and that actually really helps me to sort of get it into gear and really actually produce the work instead of just thinking about it which you know part part of it of course is thinking about it and I, I start each session with thinking about it but I think actually motivating myself to physically put the words down or to physically edit the scene or whatever I'm doing that requires a time constraint for me in order to efficiently do it otherwise that's when the sort of like idle panic sets in. Talking about the process journal that it has in it what's coming next how how much of what's coming next is there is is it just a, a chapter is it the next page is it completely till the end of the story like how much do you need to know about the book you're writing yeah before you sit down and write it great question i'm looking at actually my process journal right now um so yesterday i said up next start back in willa's chapters one of the characters a little change of scene will feel good then go back to gideon before starting the next chapter an easy bridge so I just gave myself instructions, right, um, based on how I was feeling at the very end of that session. Um, so this morning I looked at it and said, okay, start back in Willa's chapter, and I did. Um, and that's kind of how I do it. I don't do like a huge amount of instruction, but just enough to get me back into the process quickly and easily. And even further back, right at the start, when you have that first idea, how much do you know about how the whole thing will turn out? <laughs> nothing. <laughs> nothing about how the whole thing will turn out. You know, this all three of my books so far I've started thinking I'm writing one thing and it has it hasn't necessarily been wrong but it's expanded so drastically that the concept is not the same thing um like I always I, I don't really throw stories away I just keep the nugget and then play with it and grow it and grow it until it becomes a book I wanted to write about a serial killer. I knew that. And I wanted it to be in upstate New York. And I wanted it to say something about the prison system. I knew that. And I wanted it to be about his interaction with the people who are still living, not necessarily his victims. And I think the first drafts of notes on an execution were much more focused on him, the serial killer, than they were on anyone else. And I have my agent to thank for that. Um, she read a very early draft and was like, this is not working. Sort of what about the women? And women then became the main characters of the story, thanks to her, her seeing them clearly, not me. And that was well into the process, actually. And I, it was a long, sort of terrifying, oh, no, I'm on the wrong track, which I didn't have with my first book, Girl in Snow. That one came as more just additions to what I already had. See, th those initial ideas you had, they are... You know, they're doing something different. You know, we're, we're looking at a serial killer's story, not necessarily through their eyes, but through the women that he, he's associated with. Um, and, I, and as I say, I, I, I chat to authors who aren't, you know, who aren't necessarily um, twisting and ripping up the rule book to a degree as, as much as you have done. How, how important is that for you? Like when you have an idea, is it very important that this is something that's got a slight curveball on what people might expect? Yes, that's very important. I think uh, even if I try to do the straightforward thing, it never works. <laughs> it's never interesting enough for me. Um, so for example, for my third book, I can't say too much about what it's about, but I will say I, I learned my lesson. And this time, instead of writing the whole thing, my first idea, I wrote 
hundred pages of it. And it was told from three characters. And I gave it to my agent, who's my most trusted reader and very close friend. And I said, what do you think? And she said, only one of these perspectives is interesting. And I scrapped the other two. And now I'm writing the one, except it has this crazy twist to it that I would never have expected if I had kept with the the first three. So, you know, it's always a work in progress. And I'm always open to it changing in that way, because that's where I find it really begins to become itself. Talking about that twist, again, don't talk about that twist, but the process behind the twist, um, how did it arrive? Just a light bulb one day? Well, it arrived by my agent sort of saying, you know, this one character out of the three is your, is your, that's your girl. Um, And me thinking, okay, well, if I want to tell a story that generally has this premise with this one character, what is the story? Um, And it really came out from that question of sort of what is the story then if it belongs to her? And I knew I wanted to do, I'll give you a little nugget, which is that this one has a sort of speculative element to it, um, which is a new space for me. And it still has, it's still centered around a crime in the same ways as my other two books, but it does have a speculative element. And that speculative element only came when I condensed it to the one character. It just, it, it just belonged to her. It made sense. Back to notes on an execution. Um, you had that initial idea. You wanted to talk about serial killers. Uh, what happened next? How much did you think this through before you started writing? Oh, it had always been. You know, I feel like books sort of, they they grow as you continue to think through them. So, you know, I maybe had the spark of the idea in like 2016. I kind of remember writing the first pages and they were from a character who doesn't even exist anymore. Um, I remember thinking, okay, I want this feeling of the book. I want it to be sort of generally about serial killers. I want it to be set in this space. Um, and I started, I started with that. Um, yeah, I was definitely asking myself why I was interested in this, which really actually became the focal point of the book in the end was why do we care about violent crime so much? Why do we love serial killers? Why aren't we ever interested in the women? Right. And that was a question I wanted to get to the bottom of. I just didn't know that was the question at the time, but I think it always stemmed from that. Um, even subconsciously. And my good early readers, including my agent, were the ones to point that out to me. Sometimes people can see the things that you can't very clearly. <laughs> Let's talk about Ansel Packer. Just, um, you know, there have been hundreds of serial killers that have been written. And uh, because of the, the nature of how you've told the story, explaining who he is and his relationships through through the women, that that helps you make it different. But... How did you go about not making him the quote, quote, cliched serial killer? Yeah, my favorite thing about him is that he kind of is the cliched serial killer. Like he has all these traits that I pulp from the narrative that we've been telling since the 60s, 70s, which is, you know, white man, middle aged, mostly average, mostly normal to the public eye, um, but has these depravities that we somehow cannot explain, right? And I think these are all, you know, pretty well educated too. Um, These are all Ted Bundy. And these are all um, Jeffrey Dahmer to a certain extent, right? I pulled them from Charles Manson. I pulled them from real people, the real serial killers we've adored for so long. And I sort of mashed them together and made him just like the sum, the average of all of them. Um, And that's kind of the point. But of course, he also has his own internal life. And that was another point I was trying to make too, was like, yeah, there are these figures, they're greater than life, but they're also just people. And in acknowledging their humanity, we have to give them life. You're, you're writing 
it is a crime novel. I know it's treated slightly differently. How much are you thinking about the beats and the tropes from what readers would expect from a crime novel? Oh, quite a bit. A lot, especially with my first book, Girl in Snow. Um, that one was a really straightforward whodunit, you know, dead body at the beginning, the end you find out. But of course, I like to think it's doing a lot more than that, too. Um, and then this one, I really didn't want that. You know, you know, from the first page, he did it. He says he did it on like the first page of the book, right? Um, you know, he's the killer. And that's not where the tension comes from. And I really loved playing with that. I also did a lot of thinking about the trope of the police detective. There's a character named Safi who is a detective. Um, and I did a lot of thinking about what it, what we've seen of the lady cop um, in pop culture and how I could subvert that and also play into it at the same time. Because once again, there are women out there who are doing this work. Um, and policing is very, very fraught in this country. So I wanted to talk about that a little bit too. We've slightly touched on this, so it's fine. Uh, two books in, moving, you know, writing your third. What have you learned about I guess, who you are as a writer and how you write best. I feel so much more trust in the process this time around in just knowing that if I keep going and keep going and keep going, despite not wanting to or being desperate to or however I'm feeling that day, I will write a book. Um, and that is kind of what I like to impart on aspiring writers too. I mean, we're all still aspiring no matter what point we're at, but but I always like to say, if you just keep going, you will someday write a book. Like there, <laughs> the inertia demands it to be true. Um, and I think that that is very comforting to me now. Um, and trusting that, you know, if I keep touching the book, if I keep thinking about the book, if I keep working on it, it will become itself. Um, really just trust. That is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Danya Kakavka for coming on the show. That new novel, Notes on an Execution, is out right now. Next week, we're chatting to Tim Weaver, running through the newest one in the David Raker series, The Blackbird. This was done face-to-face a couple of weeks ago, and we really did chew the writing fat for a little while. So there's a lot going on in that. I think you'll really enjoy it. A lot to take away. In the meantime, you can get 10% off the fantastic writing software Plotter, Get to go.plotter, P-L-O-T-T-R, go.plotter.com slash routine. And you can always back us at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Drop us a follow on Twitter too. We are at writers pod there. You'll know it's us because we don't have a blue tick. Actually, that's most people now, isn't it? Anyway, you can get in touch with me there and on the contact page at writersroutine.com. Enough of the links. Back with Tim Weaver next week on the show. I'll see you then. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.